In, uh, in chapter 19, Paul is on his third missionary journey. Uh, he's been to the uh, city of Ephesus, and he's caused a riot. And as a result, uh, he actually basically had to get out of town. And yet in the midst of this, this riot that took place, God brought about a great deliverance that opened up Ephesus from that point on uh, and that would remain open for many years to come for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul continued on his missionary journey and he was heading uh, toward Jerusalem as we began chapter 20. And now uh, Paul has this opportunity, in many ways unexpected, to be able to spend one last time with the elders in Ephesus and to give what I have referred to in the, at the title of this sermon, a last will and testament to the church of Jesus Christ. And so we'll pick it up in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 13, and then read uh, the balance of the chapter. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos where we were going to take Paul aboard while he had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went to Mytilene, the next day, we set sail from there and arrived at Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos and on the following day, arrived at Miletos. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletos, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, and will not spare the flock. Even from among your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you, night and day, with tears. Now, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself. It is more blessed to give 
than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Father, we thank you for this very powerful and meaningful passage of scripture. And Lord, my heart's desire is that somehow you would bring it to life. It has power in itself, but I pray that as we study and as we consider its application to our life this morning, that Father, it might find a, a place and a home in our heart. And so God, we're just asking by your spirit that you would work. Holy Spirit, fill me, fill my mind, my lips with the words that you want to pass on to your sons and daughters. God, have your way. And Jesus, thank you for making it all possible. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. You know, saying goodbye uh, is not an easy thing to do. And it's especially hard if you are anticipating it's the last time you'll ever say goodbye to a person. Sometimes, uh, as we've said goodbye to loved ones, I said goodbye to my dad forever. And when we have those moments, it's very powerful. It's a very potent time, realizing that these are the last moments that we're gonna be able to share with the person. Sooner or later, each of us will have to put our house in order and communicate how our assets and our, our lives and important messages to children, how these things will be distributed and what last things we wanna communicate. And in a formal sense, that's referred to as a last will and testament. Every once in a while, Becky and I, um, my wife, we, we review our will uh, because as I get ready for that, every time I get ready for a trip, it's like, okay, well, you know, uh, let's take a look at the will. Is everything in order? Is it updated? Who are the kids going to, you know? And in this case, Becky's not going, so I'm, I'm talking with the boys, and I say, boys, if dad doesn't come home, I want you to be in charge of picking a man for your mom, you know? <laughs> Things like that, you know? My wife doesn't like this conversation at all, by the way. She says, don't talk like that, you know? You're coming back, and I'm planning on coming back, but the thing is, you just never know uh, what God has in store. So a will is, is preparation for that inevitability at some point where we're gonna have to say goodbye forever. And uh, the interesting thing is, is that I, you know, as I was looking at wills and as I was kind of considering this topic this morning, I came across some very interesting wills because uh, there is humor in, in wills. Some wills are very funny and, uh, and they, they send messages in a sense from beyond the grave uh, to people who are remaining. I came across one, uh, a, a gentleman named Anthony Scott in his last will and testament wrote, to my first wife, Sue, who I always promise to mention in my will. Hello, Sue. <laughs> Here's another one. There was a woman that, um, that loved her cat. Uh, reminds me of Leona Helmsley recently uh, with this little puffy dog that got like $12 million um, and a chauffeur and everything else. But this woman loved her cat so much that she willed everything to the cat, her house, uh, money for the rest of this cat's life, and, uh, and, the, and the funeral, beautiful, warm, sunny day, gorgeous. It, the cat was out sunning itself outside, unfortunately, in the driveway when the hearse backed right over the top of this thing and the cat went goodbye uh, to, uh, we're not quite sure where cats go, but uh, we can debate that later. Here's another one from a guy named Frank. Uh, to my dear wife, Esther, I leave the house, 50 acres of land and a million dollars. Oh, that's not bad. To my son, Barry, I leave my big Lexus and my Jaguar. To my daughter, Susie, I leave my yacht and $250,000. And to my brother-in-law, Jeff, who always insisted that health is better than wealth, I leave my treadmill. 
In this passage that we're looking at today with Paul, as he, in essence, is giving the church in Ephesus his last will and testament. Remember, he spent over three, uh, two years, approaching three years, uh, with the church in Ephesus, one of the longest stays in any of his three journeys uh, with any of the churches in, in Macedonia in the area of Asia Minor. And so he is meeting with them for one last time and in essence is saying what we say in the islands is aloha oi. It's like goodbye. This is it. It's, uh, it's time to say our final farewells. And so in essence, he's giving his last will and testament concerning not houses or property or 401ks or his retirement fund or his personal effects because in essence, Paul had none of those things. Paul had been so devoted to the cause of Christ that the only thing that he had to pass on was instruction. He passed on a legacy to the church in Ephesus, to the saints, to people he loved. Paul got it right more than most of us ever will. It's about relationship and about eternal things. And Paul knew what would last and what wouldn't. And wisely, he gave himself to the things that had eternal value. And that was his relationship with God. And it was his relationship with people. And it was leaving a legacy of a multiplied life in the people in Ephesus. So the text begins in verse 13 and tells us he travels through fairly uh, three or four uh, different towns as he's moving his way uh, toward Jerusalem. All of this is on a merchant ship. And the, the text tells us that he decided to sail past Ephesus, which is really about 30 miles inland from um, Miletus, where he ended up landing. And the reason is stated for us in the text because he wanted to reach Jerusalem by Pentecost. Uh, we know from our previous studies in Acts that he was actually aiming for the Passover, but he missed it. He had this gift for the saints of Macedonia, from the saints in Macedonia, for the church in Jerusalem that was suffering so severely and he wanted to make sure that that gift got there in time for the Passover. And so rather than going up to Ephesus, again, he was the cause of a, of a riot uh, not too many months earlier. And instead, he invites the elders to come down to him so that he can, in essence, say goodbye for the last time. And, and as he's sharing these words, I just want you to think, and I was thinking about this myself. I, I talked to my son, um, John, this morning, and I said, John, if if you knew that I wasn't coming back from this trip I'm going on in the next few weeks, what would you want me to tell you? And he thought for a minute and he, he said, I, I'd, want, I'd want to know what's important to you. I'd want to know how to take care of things here. I'd want to know what you'd want me to do. And I thought, wow, because in essence, that's what Paul is doing for these elders. He thinks that they will never see him again. He thinks that his, his capacity to give instruction from this point on will never occur again in human form. Therefore, he's got to give them the most important kind of the, 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 the meat of whatever God gives him to be able to pass on of all the years of ministry. Keep in mind that we're 25 years after the day of Pentecost now in Acts chapter two. And so Paul has about 20 years of ministry behind him and relationship with God, and he's gonna pass on to the church the things that he believes are the most important pieces of information for the church to have, for these elders, these leaders to have in order to faithfully lead this flock. And so it's, uh, it's just filled with information uh, for all of us, uh, but in particular for those that are leaders. So he sends for the leaders, and, uh, and he begins in verse 18 by defending his ministry. In essence, what he says is, you know, you know how I've lived among you. 
you know that I've, I've opened my life to you. I have not held anything back. I've lived transparently. I've been with you. I've eaten with you. I've worked with you. I've suffered with you. I've been persecuted with you. We've cried together. We've had joy together. We've witnessed together. We've evangelized together. We have discipled together. We have done all of this in the name of Jesus, and it's been together. You are witnesses of my life. I have lived it transparently before you. You know, I, I remember um, when I was a younger Christian being a little put off by Paul uh, because I thought, this guy's so arrogant, you know? And if you read this text not knowing his heart, you could, you could read this as arrogance. But what Paul wanted to do for the church was to give them a flesh and blood model of what Jesus Christ looked like, what a godly leader looked like. So much so that in, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he tells the church, follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus Christ. Those are very bold words. And if it weren't bad enough, he says it two more times to the church in Thessalonica. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow my example. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, join others in following my example. There are very few people I know that are willing to make a statement like that, and yet I believe with all my heart that it's a statement that should cross the lips of every Christian man and woman for those under their care. Children, family members, a spouse, people under your responsibility in your workplace, people under your care at church, younger believers that you're nurturing and, and allowing to uh, kind of tie up to you in the Christian life as they kind of sink their roots in the word of God. But Paul was a man that wasn't afraid to say, I understand that people need a living, breathing example of what this Christian life is actually supposed to look like. Not hear Paul say, don't look at me because I'll disappoint you. Only look to Jesus. Well, that statement has crossed many of our lips. It's not a biblical statement. What Paul says is biblical. As he says, you've watched my life. You've seen my life. You've observed my life. And out of these things, I want to share some things with you. In verse 19, he says, I serve the Lord with great humility and tears despite severe testing by Jewish plots. I was thinking about this because... Um, I think any Christian has a heart to serve the Lord. It's part of what the Holy Spirit puts in, in us is a desire to, to get beyond ourselves and begin to, to minister and to give ourselves away uh, to other people and for the cause of Christ. But it's a whole nother arena when you're giving yourself away in the midst of suffering. I thought about this yesterday because I'm, you know, I'm preparing this message and I'm praying over it and, and uh, asking for, for God to speak to me. And uh, my wife and my son, one of my sons came into my office at home that's out in the garage and, and uh, there was a, a little bit of a conflict that was taking place. And as this conflict was going on, I was listening to this side and that side and, and, uh, and I was just thinking to myself, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I really need to get this done. Is there a possible uh, way that you guys can work this out? And, and it kind of went back and forth right in the office again. And, and I'm thinking to myself, here's what I'm really thinking. I'm thinking, I've, I've got a message I've got to prepare. This is my study time. Can't you just take care of this? Can't you just deal with this? You know? And, and, and then it kept going. And finally, I've, in, my, in my heart, what I was really thinking, not what I said, but what I was thinking was, don't you realize that I've got to prepare a message on the life of Paul for tomorrow and you're bothering me with all of these things? And, and, and what happened is that, and, and what really came out was like, I just need you guys to leave. I just need you to take care of this. But in my heart, I was, I was, 
I got so convicted because as, I, as they left the office, I, I was reading this part of the message. <laughs> you know, when the, God is just like that. It's like this humility, these tears that Paul is sharing, this compassion, this love, this concern for other people. And he does it not out of the overflow of his life, but when his own reserves are, are depleted by the plots of the Jews. Paul's life was at stake, and yet he still, still gave himself away. And, I, and I, had, I called my, you know, my, my wife back in, and like even this morning last night, I read to repent to her, repent to my son, please forgive me. You know, I failed. And I'm gonna talk about that in a couple of minutes. But, but here Paul is a man that has submitted himself to the Lord in such a way that he's not giving out of the reserve. You know, we can all be loving and kind and compassionate when, when our cup is full and when we have reserve, but what do you do and how do you respond when you're stretched out thin and when your cup is low and you don't have a lot of reservoir of strength left? In that circumstance, Paul says, you know how I lived among you, how I walked with, you hum- with humility and with tears. I poured my life out. Even when I was suffering, Paul says, he gave himself away. And I, I, uh, I couldn't help but think of, uh, of Paul's words to the Philippian church in chapter two, verse five, where he said that your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So here we have really the ultimate example of Christ's likeness, of course, is Jesus. And in, in, not in his abundance, but in his lack, in the suffering that Jesus went through, he still gave it all without complaint. And so now Paul, following in the footsteps of Jesus, is able to do the same. And now, in application, the calling, of course, that we have is to begin to rely on God and the Holy Spirit's power to such a degree that even when we're stretched, and maybe especially when we're stretched and our reservoir of strength is low, that we continue to live lives of humility and compassion and love for other people. Verse 20 tells us that, in addition, Paul didn't hesitate to preach anything that was helpful. This word hesitate means to withhold or conceal or shrink back from. And he says, I did not hold back or conceal anything or shrink back from teaching you both publicly and also from house to house. What was he teaching them? He was teaching them the word of God. That was the the strength of the ministry was the word of God. And he said, I didn't hold any of it back from you. Nothing was held back. I taught it, all of it, faithfully, according to the will of God. And in Colossians, he describes the kind of passion that Paul has in actually giving the word of God to the saints. He says, we proclaim him, admonishing everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, Paul says, struggling. The word is is actually a, a word for wrestling. Struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. So you kind of get an idea that Paul's passion for people was the preaching and teaching of the word of God. I came across a quote as I was um, uh, preparing this message, actually when I was teaching a a message on the authority and veracity of the Bible, but I want to read it to you again, and the author's unknown, uh, but very powerful. This book that we're talking about, the Bible, 
is the mind of God. The state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It's the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here paradise is restored, heaven is opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts, and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ, and yes, to glory itself for eternity. Isn't that wonderful? The power of the word of God, and Paul never lost sight of it, and so he continued year after year, relationship after relationship, church after church, preaching and teaching the word of God. Verse 21 tells us the very core of what he taught. He says, both to Greeks and to Jews, I never stop teaching that they must, number one, turn to God in repentance, and number two, have faith in our Lord Jesus. Those two things. In fact, you know, the gospel in, in, in all of its complexity in some sense is so simple and uncomplicated because you can really summarize the entire gospel in two words, repent and believe. Repent just means to have a change of mind. I don't want to go that way anymore. That's what I had to do yesterday. I had to repent. I think oftentimes we think of repentance as something that we do just when we come to Christ. But repentance and believing is something that's a part of the walk of Christ. So when I came to Christ, I had to repent. I had to say, I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to live God's way. And I believe in Jesus Christ. And so I put my faith in Christ as much as I knew what that meant. Didn't fully understand the import of that decision. But with what I did understand, I gave myself to that decision. And then I found out that the next day I woke up, I had to repent again because I had things that I'd done or thought or said that I knew weren't right. The Holy Spirit convicted me. I went to the word of God. Oh, the word of God is sometimes very convicting, isn't it? We come to it and it's like, you know, ah, oh. And I can look at that and say, I don't want to read it. Or I can say, thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are so determined to bring about the changes in me that you don't let me off the hook. You know, And so I've got to come to the word of God really on a regular basis and I, I, I need to be influenced by it. I need the mind of Christ. You need the mind of Christ. We get it by a daily intake and study and meditation on this book because it's the last, in essence, the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. He's given us by his spirit these words so that we can know how to conduct ourselves until we are united with him. And so I've got to repent and then I need to believe. And then I find I need to repent again and I need to believe. No excuses for sin, but the closer I get to the Lord, the more I'm aware of the, the vast disparity between the holiness of God and my condition. And so I have to make it a regular part of my life. And Paul says to the Ephesus elders, you must not leave this basic fundamental teaching. I've taught you anything that would be helpful, but you must not. You must never depart from the simplicity of the word of God of repentance and belief. 
And as we repent and believe and repent and believe, those become the footsteps of spiritual growth in our walk with the Lord. Verse 22, he tells us that he was compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem despite not knowing what would happen there. I, I again, think about Jesus in, in Luke chapter 9, 51 that basically said the same thing. I, I'm going to Jerusalem. He was resolutely determined to go to a place where he knew that suffering was awaiting him. Likewise, Paul was warned by the Holy Spirit in verse 23 that he would face prison and hardships. This word hardships means pressure or affliction or persecution or trouble. So here's Paul, in essence, being warned by the Holy Spirit, and he says, town after town, everywhere I go, it's just like the same thing, everywhere, <laughs> just like, okay, don't tell me. The prophets are gonna stand, I'm gonna have persecution and suffering in Jerusalem. How am I doing? Wow, that's it, that's it, how'd you know? Well, because he's heard, he's heard it over and over. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, why would Paul keep going when the Holy Spirit's warning him? Well, the text doesn't tell us the Holy Spirit said, don't go, he just warned him what was coming. He was giving him a heads up. I've really only had that happen one time in my life, and it was about maybe six or seven years ago, and I was having a time on Mondays when I pray and worship and I was journaling and reading scripture. It was just a glorious day and, and the church, everything was good. I mean, I just, I, my whole time was really consumed with just prayer and worship and loving God, thanking him for what he was doing. And then the Holy Spirit started giving me all these verses, you know, and, he, and just taking me to him. It was just like, you know, be strong and courageous. Don't fear. I'm with you always. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And it just, there were like 15 of them. And by the time I got to the end, I was like, uh-oh. You know, there's a reason he's giving these to me. And I started praying about it and I felt really convicted and sure that he was telling me, he was giving me a warning. Not to tell me not to keep going, but to strengthen me and to prepare me for what was coming. And in essence, that's what Paul is experiencing here. And he's warned by the Holy Spirit uh, that as he moves closer and closer to the destination and the purposes of God, the more opposition will come. That's one of the things that I wanna, I wanna apply here on a personal level with us. As you move closer to the heart of God, as you are empowered by his spirit and more yielded to him, as you cry out for strength and wisdom, as you abandon your own agenda and your own plans, and as you begin more and more to live for Christ, and as you find yourself going right into the heart of the lion's den of the enemy, Satan is going to attack. Satan is not gonna stand by and simply shrug his shoulders and said, gee, they seem kind of determined. I'll work on someone else. No, you are coming closer and closer to his territory and to his domain, and he will not stand by and simply watch you take territory. So what's Satan's strategy? Well, he's gonna throw everything he can at you. He's gonna throw the kitchen sink. He's gonna throw family problems, financial problems. He's gonna throw marital problems in there. He's gonna throw church problems in. He's gonna throw just about anything and everything that you can think of including temptation, including discouragement, anything he can get his hands on to dissuade you from the mission. And you'll have to make a decision at that point whether those things will move you. In the King James Version, Paul says right after this in verse 24, these things do not move me. Don't you like that? I love that. I will not be moved by what's coming. When Paul was uh, addressing the, the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, this is what he said to them. He said, therefore, my dear brothers, 
Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And I guess the question I, I want to ask and I ask myself is, what moves you? I don't mean emotionally or spiritually, but I'm talking about what moves you from the will of God? How much does it take to pull you off the plan that God has? What, what's a big enough draw to you that you would allow your life to be absorbed by something else other than God's purpose for you? What is it that's, that's so attractive to you that you'll, you'll actually leave the will of God and the purpose of God in order to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season? What is it that, that it's powerful enough to move you? Maybe it's the point where none of those things move you, but when you look at the possibility of death or persecution, that's enough to move you, to cause you to back off. But Paul, again, laying it down, says, these things don't move me. Satan cannot frighten me. I will not be deterred. I don't care what's coming. They won't move me. And so Paul says, in verse 24, that he considered his life worth nothing compared with finishing his race and completing his God-given task. You know, Paul, Paul saw himself as an ambassador for Christ, a runner in, in the, under the banner of, of Jesus Christ, that he was given a race to run that wasn't really even his own. It was given by God. And God expected him to complete that, that course. It's, um, some of you are old enough to remember when, before the Soviet Union uh, uh, kind of dismantled uh, and now they're, what do you call it now? They're remantling. Uh, you know, they're reorganizing and it's, it's, uh, it's amazing what's happening and how uh, Putin is becoming uh, really a, a czar again, uh, really a king of that land. But uh, some of you are old enough to remember when, when the Olympics would come, there was a lot at stake when the Americans won or when the, when the Russians won, when the Soviet Union won. And, uh, and uh, you know, when we had a, a first black runner, do you remember? Uh, some of you remember when he, when he was running and it was just like it was a huge thing because of this whole Aryan thing and, and it was his name Ben? I think his name was, what was his name? Jesse Owens. Jesse Owens, thank you. So Jesse Owens, you're too, some of you are too young to even know who that guy is. So Jesse Owens ran and it was just like this huge kind of in your face to the whole Aryan nation thing. And in essence, what Paul is saying is I am a runner under the banner of Jesus Christ and I don't have the, the, the opportunity or the privilege of stopping this race. And I'm running in his name and I am running to win it. I have a God-given mission and a task to finish, a task to complete. And he tells us what that task is, to testify of the gospel of Christ and his grace. Isn't that wonderful? He brings it back down again. 25 years of ministry, 20 plus years of ministry, and the message hasn't changed. He hasn't gone on to deeper things and, you know, well, we need to pursue this, this course of, of teaching now because the Holy Spirit's doing a new thing, a new rhema word coming from God, and now we need to begin moving in this direction and concentrating our efforts here. No, Paul says it's the, it's the fundamental foundational message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you as my brothers and sisters in Christ that that message has not changed and that fundamental race has not been altered. You have a race to run. It's a different from mine. It's different from anyone else's, but it's still the same race. We're in different lanes. And yet the rules don't change. And the, and the, the finish line hasn't moved. And, and the requirements have not been altered. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our mission. Ultimately, that's what it boils down to, and it boils down to two simple words, repent and believe. Repent 
and believe. It seems like such a simple message, it's almost embarrassing that 25 years later, Paul is saying the same things, and yet it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The salvation of everyone who believes in that simple message. And so I want to encourage you that as the church of Christ, Paul in this last will and testament is saying, do not be moved from the simple task of sharing with your friends and family the message of Christ and his grace. Verse 25, he gives them a dose of reality and says, I'm never going to see you again. Now, obviously, this was Paul's opinion because it wasn't from God because we find out in, in chapter 4, I believe, of 1 Timothy that indeed he did see them once again. But at that time, he thought this is probably the end. The words I'm getting about prison and suffering appear to me to point toward the fact that I will never see you again. And he declared himself innocent of the blood of all men, which sounds a little odd unless you know uh, the Old Testament and the book of Ezekiel because in chapter 33, verses seven through nine, God speaks to Ezekiel and summarizing it, paraphrasing it, says, Ezekiel, you are my watchman. I am calling you to speak in my behalf and I am calling you to speak to the house of Israel who's in sin, to those that you speak to who don't respond they will die for their sin, but you will not be guilty of their blood. However, Ezekiel, if I send you to speak my message of repentance and belief, and you fail to speak for whatever reason, he's moved for some reason from doing the simple task of proclaiming the gospel, not easy, but uncomplicated. He said, then that person who dies will die for their sin, and I will hold you guilty of that man's blood. Wow, can you imagine that? We don't think about that very often, but what Paul is saying is he's referencing the last 20 years of ministry, and in particular, the ministry with the Ephesian church, and he says, I am innocent because I have fulfilled and carried out the trust that's been given to me to preach the gospel in its simplicity from house to house, day after day, in the temple, publicly, wherever I could, I preached I didn't hold anything back. I wasn't moved from the simple gospel. I thought about that, and I, and I, I, I want to ask the question of, of you rhetorically. Are you innocent? I can't even say I'm innocent. I don't know if anyone really can, but Paul said he was innocent, so it's certainly possible. But I think what it, what it prompted in me, and, and I'm hoping will stir you up, is that we have to be really serious about this trust that's given to us. We think the running the race is, is, you know, having the house and the car and the kids in school and then on college and taking care of business and having a 401k and having vacation, looking forward to that retirement, you know, when we can come to Hawaii, you know. That's kind of what we think is our race and then helping at church on occasion. That's part of it. But, and God loves us to enjoy what he's given us. The Bible tells us that in Timothy. He says, God has given us all these things for our enjoyment, but they must not deter us from the race that set out before us to run. And so Paul says that he was innocent of the blood of all men. And, and I want to just touch on this whole thing about race one more time because as we are in this race, we can be moved. And so the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, 1 tells us what we need to be careful of in order not to be moved. And this is what 
the writer says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, you know, you have the idea of almost an, an arena. You, you have an Olympic stadium where all of these clouds of witnesses who have gone on before us, who have run faithfully their race, are now observing us in the running of our race. And he says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And so you, you have a race. And that race is not simply to just take care of yourself, but ultimately that race is the simplicity of the gospel of grace. It's multiplying yourself. That's been God's plan from the beginning. He told Adam and Eve, multiply. I want more people just like you. I shared with our leadership team as we prayed before the service. Right after that in chapter five, Adam, it says, and Adam, after 130 years, had a son in his own image. In his likeness, he had a son. And so God gives Adam his likeness. Adam gives his son his likeness. His son gives his son his likeness. And on it goes as the, the earth is filled and multiplied, unfortunately because of the sin of Adam with sinners, not with saints. But now that we've been redeemed as Christ's people, he says, I want you to multiply. I want more just like you in the image of Jesus Christ. Multiply, run your race, preach the gospel. In verse 28 through 31, he gives them some warnings. Very much like I think I would do with my sons in a will, is to say these are the things you need to do, these are also the things you need to watch out for. And so he says, watch over yourselves. Watch over yourselves and be shepherds of the church of God. So he tells them to watch over themselves and in that context, and he says also over the flock of God. So watch yourself, watch over the flock of God. Very similar to what he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 16. He says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Watch your life, Timothy. Watch your life, Timothy. Watch your life and your doctrine. Watch these two things closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Um, some of you just came over on a flight from the mainland. I think most of you flew to get here. So you flew over here and you had to listen to the patter of the uh, stewards uh, that, or stewardesses, they don't even call them that. What do they call them? Flight attendants, okay? So the flight attendants are giving you their little spiel. And if you've never been on a plane before, you're just like, what, what, where's the thing? Where, you know, where's the door? You know, where's the, what do I do with the mask? And it's like, well, I didn't hear, what did they say? You know, but after you've flown for a little bit, it's just like, you don't even listen. You're reading them in the magazine. You're just like, you're tuning out completely. But what do they tell you when they say, if the cabin decompresses, what do you do? Well, out of the, out of the top of your, uh, the panel above you will drop this little mask. Pull on the mask. If the bag's not full, don't worry about it. Oxygen will be released, you know. But they say very clearly, make sure you've got your mask on if you have children first and then give it to your children. Why? Because if the parents pass out, the kids are in trouble, right? So what, what Paul is saying is, watch yourselves. Don't pass out. Don't let anything happen to you because if something happens to you, the kids under your care are gonna be deeply affected because they will be uncertain about what to do. And he says, be shepherds of the church of God. Protect them, teach them, feed them, govern them, love them, encourage them, give yourself to them. Peter says something very similar to, uh, to leaders as he calls to the elders of the church and uh, the various churches that this letter went to. And he says to them, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care as God wants you to be, not because you have to be, but because you're willing 
as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that uh, will never be taken away. And so again, we have these same instructions of shepherding. Um, the, the word is totally appropriate, but I actually prefer the word under shepherd uh, because I think it, 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 it's, it, both are appropriate, but under shepherd is the idea of coming under the flock, not over the flock. And I really believe that's the mark of, of leadership at really any level, whether it's in the home or the workplace or uh, in church, that leadership comes under and lifts, not comes on over and oppresses. And uh, so we're to, we're to be the people that actually come under and lift people in order that they might be able to walk with God. And he says that this church that you are coming under and lifting up belong to me. They've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever heard a, a, a leader or a pastor or somebody in charge of a ministry uh, use terminology like my ministry or my people, we're doing this and, and uh, my vision and these things. And I just get really nervous about that because none of these things belong to us. They're entrusted to us for a, a season. It's God's ministry, it's God's church. These are God's resources, you are God's people. And what it does for me in, in, in thinking in those terms and those differences is that it, it heightens my sense of, of fear of God and fear of doing anything wrong or hindering in any way the work of God in your life by my example or by the decisions we make or anything else because I am an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd. They're his flock, you belong to him. Your family, by the way, is not yours, it belongs to God. Your business is not yours, it belongs to God. The influence you have in your community is not yours, it belongs to God. All these things belong to him and he is expecting that we will represent him properly and with integrity as we serve uh, in that capacity. He also warns him and says, you need to expect savage wolves. This has gotta be just a heartbreak for Paul. He says, there are gonna be people that come from the outside that actually just rip the flock to pieces and you need to be aware that that's gonna happen. Can you imagine? I mean, I, I can imagine it's like telling my son, you know, I don't know who, I don't know who your dad will be, your stepdad or whatever, but boy, I, I hope he's, he might be a wolf, you know? You need to be aware. There might be people in your life that try to take advantage of you or hurt you. And, and you know, to, as, as Paul, can you imagine the, the sense of helplessness? But he tells them, you've got to be warned. I've warned you about this before, he says, but you need to be warned again. And there are going to be people not just coming from the outside, but even from within the church who rise up and become wolves. How does that happen? How does somebody that, that seems like a sheep become a wolf? Well, I think it happens when people begin to think that for some reason there's something special about them that caused God to elevate them. And then they begin to take advantage of that leadership role. And they begin to kind of uh, usurp authority and they begin to kind of lord it over people and become very bossy and arrogant and very myopic, and then it becomes all about them and their ministry and what they've accomplished. And that can happen to any of us, especially to those that have been given the responsibility to lead in the church. And so Paul says, beware, be careful. They will distort the truth and they will draw disciples away after them. And so he says, be on your guard. Verse 32 tells us that he entrusted them to God, committed them to God, committed them to the word of grace that can build them up. Oikodomeo, that word, it's like construction. You're constructing the church. How is it done? 
It's by being committed to God and being committed to the word of God's grace. Those two things together, a commitment to Christ and a commitment to his word are the things that build other people up around us. It's exactly what Paul used. It was God's word that Paul preached resulting in their salvation. It was God's word that Paul taught them to protect them, to sustain them. It was God's word that was used to build them up and to bring them to maturity in their faith. It was God's word that will bring about an eternal inheritance among those who are sanctified, which God, Paul says, will be given to them as a result of their faithful service. And then he does something interesting in verse 35, uh, 33 through 35. He vindicates his own conduct. And again, this sounds a little bit arrogant, but if you go back and look at 1 Samuel, uh, we actually find uh, Samuel in chapter 12, verse 3, doing the same thing as he's about to depart the people of Israel. He says, have I coveted anyone's stuff? Have I stolen anything from anybody? Have I done any wrong? Have I stumbled anyone? If I've done any of those things, I want to make it right today. And all the people say, no, Samuel, you haven't done anything like that. You've been godly. You've been a wonderful example. And so Paul, in essence, is saying the same thing, which is a part of the Hebrew culture uh, and also a part of the uh, last testament and will for an Israelite is to exonerate uh, their conduct. And so he says, I didn't covet anyone's goods. I supplied my own needs and even my companions, though I was, I had the privilege of of taking uh, funds for the support of the ministry. I didn't take that opportunity. Instead, I modeled to you what hard work looks like so that I might not only take care of our own needs, but also model concern for the weak, which of course he did. Verse 36 tells us that after he'd finished this last will and testament, and again, so interesting to consider what he said, but also what he didn't say. But he's done. These are what he believes are his final words to these elders, these final instructions to a brand new church. And after they said their goodbyes, they all knelt down and prayed. I'm kind of envisioning this on the beach, you know, with a a boat, a launch, or on a dock. And I, I, right now, so many stories of of the missionaries uh, from, from the East Coast coming even to Hawaii as they were prayed for over the docks knowing, believing that it's quite possible they would never see their loved ones again. And I'm trying to imagine the, the power of a moment like that. So Paul, with these Ephesian elders, they kneel down and they pray, and it says they all wept and embraced and kissed him. And they were grieved by Paul's statements that they would never see him again. This is a very amazing moment and scene of fellowship where Paul knew what was facing him. They were strengthening one another in the Lord, undergirding, supporting, praying, feeling the heartache of the occasion and yet the joy of the time that they'd had together and knowing that they belonged to the Lord and knowing that one day they would be reunited. As I thought about this, I thought about, um, gosh, you know, I never planned to leave this island or this church. But I, I just don't know what God, what his plans are and what he does. But if the occasion ever did come that God called me to do something else or for some reason it was appropriate for me to leave, boy, I'm thinking I sure hope that you guys love me when I leave. I I hope that we have the kind of bond all the way through to the very end of our time where we're all grieved 
and we're grieved and my family's grieved and we're, we're weeping together and we're, we're expressing joy together in anticipation of the future in the kingdom of God, knowing that we might never see each other again. And the reason I say that is because I know so many pastors that leave with the church like, man, this guy's left a mess. You know, adultery, financial mismanagement, uh, 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 overbearing nature, gossip, slander, ripping, tearing the church to shreds. And it happens again and again and again. And, you know, to be honest with you, I, I'm, praying, I'm praying this on so many levels. I want to leave this life with my family by my grave really blessed by the legacy I've left. I'd, I, maybe it's selfish, but I think it honors the Lord. I would like to leave this church whenever that time comes, whether it's by a grave or by a calling, I want to leave this church having left a legacy of blessing. I want to challenge you. We don't think about this often enough. Sometimes it's kind of like, you know, nobody wants to talk about it. Don't talk about that. Don't talk about, you know, leaving or dying or, you know, that's depressing, you know? And some people are like, don't talk about it. It might happen. You know, like somehow talking about it's going to force the issue. And God, oh, God says, oh, man, he's talking about it. Time to go, you know? <laughs> it's not like that. So, but we don't give it enough thought. And because we don't think about it enough, so often we allow our lives to be mismanaged and we allow our lives to be derailed and we have not allowed ourselves to stand firm and we have been moved from the things that really matter. And so my encouragement to you as we kind of bring, come to an end in this message is simply this, is that Paul presented himself as a role model. Can you do the same? And if you can't, why not? I hate to be so pointed, but the truth is why not? Why haven't these words, follow me as I follow Christ, passed over your lips to your spouse and to your children and to the people in your sphere of influence? Why not? It's how it's been done. It's how Christ did it. It's how Paul did it. And we are to pass on this legacy. The other thing I want to mention to you is that most of us in our last will and testament are only addressing material things. Very few of us have actually addressed a legacy of final words to our family, of final words to our children, of things that are really important. Like my son said, I'd want to know what's important to you. What is important to you? What's important to me? Until we get to this point, sometimes we don't even really think about it, but Paul was a wise man because he lived his whole life and at the end of it, he had nothing, nothing to give. There was nothing he could pass on. Maybe he had a robe and some parchments and a few other things, but there was, no, there was, there was nothing material to, to bequeath. It was just nothing. But he did pass on a legacy of something that had eternal value and that was a lifestyle of complete openness and friendship and love and transparency and commitment and passion to those that were under his leadership. Who has God put under you? Who has he called you to under-shepherd? This passage is overwhelming. I look at it and my, you know what I really feel in my heart? Who can do this? Don't you feel that way a little bit? Am I the only one? There are four of you that feel like I do. <laughs> but I want to share the words of Jesus. In another occasion, another setting, another conversation, he says what's impossible with man is possible with God. You were never intended to be able to do this without the power of Christ. God is calling you. And I would suggest to you today, this morning, he's calling you again. And he's saying, repent and believe. Take two more steps. 
in your walk with the Lord. And then do it again, and do it again, and do it again. And don't let anything move you from the calling and the race that you've got. What is it? To fulfill the God-given mission. In two words, preaching the gospel, a gospel of repentance and belief, living a life of integrity. I don't need to tell you that the world is crying for authentic Christianity. They long for it. They may make fun of us and they may disdain the church, but they have, in some cases, good reason to feel those things. By, by the power of God, I, I challenge you, under the inspiration and, and anointing of the Holy Spirit, to give them a reason to change their perspective. Begin to live what God has called us to. Begin to live not parts of it, but all of what God has called us to. What legacy will you leave? What will you pass on to your family, to your friends? Think about it now, because you may not have time to think when the moment comes. So spend some time, maybe even this week, considering some of the questions that I've uh, noted in your, um, in your notes from the message, and then begin to make the necessary changes for the inevitability of that last will and testament and that final legacy that you will leave before the Lord brings us home. And what I wanna say to you is, in all seriousness, is that we may never see each other again. There are many of us that will never see each other again in this auditorium, in this tent. And God is saying, make sure that what you leave behind is lasting and make sure that what you leave behind is pleasuring God and advancing the cause of Christ. Father, we thank you for this time this morning and for your word. God, it's a, it's a complete honor and privilege to be able to open the text of scripture and to study this last will and testament of the Apostle Paul. God, I pray that you would make us the kind of men and women because we all are leading in some capacity, in some venue, in some way. I pray that you would give us a heart like Paul that when we leave, when our time is complete, when our race is finished, that we will have left a legacy of blessing, a legacy of godliness, a legacy of a fruitful life, a legacy of a multiplied life. And that when we return to you, we will hear those words, well done, what a great race you ran. You completed the mission, you completed the task. Now, enter into the joy of your master's happiness. And until that day that we're finally reunited with you and all those that we've loved here, may you make us faithful, cause us to stand, and help us to finish our race. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.